So, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian preacher walk into a podcast. It sounds like a joke, but it's really a friendship. I am Imam Omar Shahid of Masjid As-Salam. And I'm Rabbi Jonathan Case from Beth Shalom Synagogue. And I'm Reverend Ellen Fellers, Goodmore of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church. All of us gathered today in Columbia, South Carolina, to welcome you to our podcast, Abraham's Table. Our conversations over these last weeks have stirred up our own curiosity about each other's scriptures or holy writings. So today we continue to learn from each other, and I invite you all to join us. And I'm going to open up, if I may, with uh, talking about the Jewish scriptures, how they came to be, what they are. And I guess the best place to begin is what most of us are familiar with, that we divide the scriptures into three segments. The first segment is what we call the Pentateuch in English. In Hebrew, we call it the Torah. The second segment is what we call um, the Prophets or in Hebrew, the Nevi'im. And the third segment of the Bible is that which we call the Ketuvim, or in English, the writings. So we divide the Bible into those three segments. And how they came to be organically is the first segment, the Torah, the five books of Moses, beginning with Genesis and ending with Deuteronomy, came first, tells the story of the creation of the world, up until the death of Moses at the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy. And then we open up the book of prophets, which engages people in historical level on all the problems that they encountered during the course of the years that followed their independence and living in the land of Israel. And then the writings, of course, are far more emotionally evocative than they are historical. Whether you're talking about the Psalms or the book of Ecclesiastes or whatever, But one of the questions that people have often wondered is, where did the canon start? And more importantly, where did the canon stop? Why did it stop at the end of the second book of Chronicles? And the best answer that I could come across was the scholars of the various generations determined that the Bible could not be an open book forever. For if it were... um, (coughs) The old encyclopedias that you and I used to own that were 24 volumes, well, (laughs) that would pale in comparison because there have been many scholars and saints and prophets throughout the ages that would have had to have been included in the canon. So in their wisdom, they decided that the age of canonizing prophecy would close with what is now in the canon and that any ancillary prophecies or or sacred writings or whatever, would continue, but there would be in ancillary books, not in the primary ones. But there's a number of other questions that accompany this. One of them is, is are they all equal in terms of their sacredness? You're talking about what was actually included and called canon, what mm-hmm. was called scriptures. Tell me, I believe I know that the formulation of the closing of the canon was tied to the destruction of the Second Temple. Is that so or no? The canon actually was closed (coughs) before the destruction of the Second Temple, probably sometime maybe a hundred or so years before the Common Era. 
And one of the proof texts for that is the books of Maccabees, which was decided to be, have been excluded from the canon, the, that the canon was already closed by then, so the books of Maccabees were never, enclo- were never in, encapsulated in the Hebrew scriptures. Many of the apocalyptic writings that are found in the Apocrypha, too, were decided to have been excluded because they were late in formation. And also because they probably spoke to an audience that was very specific. So, for example, much of the apocryphal writings have come down to us from the Essenes, who lived in the southern portion of of Israel, and they lived a sequestered life, a very monastic kind of life, and it wasn't for everybody. It was only for them. So those scriptures, too, were determined to not have been in sync with the largesse of a community that would exist in Israel and in the diaspora for the balance of time. So you call those books apocryphal books as well? We do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there are, most of those apocryphal books, too, are eschatological in nature as, as well, which we tend in Judaism to de-emphasize. What I mean by that, in terms of eschatological, is they, they tend to focus on predicting things that are yet to come. And because human nature is so fickle, and because we don't know the, the mind of God, those two were deemed to be inappropriate to be a part of the scripture. A little bit of a story. Before you go there, I just want to ask one question. So if I say Old Testament, that's not... Uh correct and referring to your scriptures. Thanks for bringing that up, my friend. Yeah. So the the Bible was, for us, was a closed document at least, if not more, than a century before Jesus' life. So the the New Testament could not have been part of it because it was already a closed canon. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's one question that Christians have often asked me, how come you don't have the New Testament? So, but to your question specifically, do we not call it the Old Testament? Yes, we don't. And the reason we don't is because the implication is if there's an Old Testament, there must be a new one. Mm-hmm. It's the Jewish Bible. So the Christian Bible includes the Jewish Bible and the other writing. Right. You don't call the Quran the Bible? No. Okay. Just checking. But if we wanted to give someone a comparison, we would say our Bible is the Quran. Gotcha. So there's an old, there's an old story um, which comes out of the book of Exodus, mm. which you're probably familiar with, probably all the listeners are familiar with, that Moses went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights and came down with God's word, which we normally understand to be the Ten Commandments, inscribed according to that passage by the finger of God when he came down and he told the people what was in it. Not so much later... All the people line up in front of Moses as they're wandering through the desert with a series of questions for Moses about the import of the Ten Commandments. In other words, a husband may say of his wife, she did this to me, what do I do? Or a storekeeper may just say, they stole this from me, what's my compensation? Well, those things are not encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. So how would Moses know to answer the queries that were brought before him? So the story that's told in the Talmud, is that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God gave him these tablets. He brought down the tablets, and then they asked the question, why was Moses up there for 40 days and 40 nights? What was he doing there? I mean, 
how long does it take for God to give the Ten Commandments? A millisecond? Here, Moses, take this, go down, tell the people, we're good. So the legend goes that Moses stood over God's back as Moses saw God writing the Torah out. And then God proceeded to teach Moses an oral tradition of how it's to be understood. Moses said, for example, an eye for an eye. Are you sure you want me to do that, God? Uh, by the way, I, I'm making this part up. He didn't really have that conversation, okay? But I'm just throwing that in to make it a little interesting. Yeah. Do you really mean an eye for an eye? We're going to have a blind society here running around. And the response was no. It's not an eye for an eye, literally, but this is how it's to be understood. When somebody damages another individual, what is the compensation and what is to be done with the perpetrator of the crime? Was it an accident? Was it purposeful? So questions like that. So the question of holy scriptures for the Jewish faith is, yes, it is those three segments of the Bible, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. But sacred writings continue on because of that oral tradition that we believe that Moses received on Mount Sinai and then promulgated throughout the centuries. So beyond scripture, there's the Talmud and what else? Well, the Talmud, well, there's much. Yeah. But the Talmud is broken down into two segments, and I'd just like to deal with one. Okay because it deals with the story that I just told about Moses with the oral tradition on Mount Sinai. The first or primary section of the Talmud is something called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah literally means the oral tradition or that which is repeated. And it was. It was an oral tradition that was handed down from generation to generation. And is stylistically, it is written in such a fashion as to be easily memorizable and then reportable from generation to generation. And there were people in the community whose sole job it was to act as these reporters, these repositories of information that were handed down from Moses through the generations accurately so that they could be preserved and then used as interpretations to understand what it is that God wants of us. It's commentary on the Bible. Exactly. And then the other things that are outgrowths of that, such as the Talmud and other writings, are simple amplifications of what that means. Because sometimes even that which is seen to be clear upon further investigation requires greater clarity. So in my seminary education, there was conversation about a council of Yamnia, was it? right before the destruction of the temple right. that was somehow formative in terms of, of formulating the limits. Is that so or is that not so? That is so, yeah. And the fe fellow who um, convened that council was a guy by the name of Rabbi Johanan or Yochanan. Yeah. So the, the limits of the Jewish Bible really were set by consensus over the course of a couple of hundred years. Right. And you find... For example, one of the latest books, if not the latest book of the entire Bible, is the book of Daniel, which many people are familiar with, but what most people will not be familiar with is that's actually written in two different languages, which shows that it actually crossed borders in terms of time. Half of it is in Hebrew, the other half of it is in Aramaic. 
So that's one of the oldest books because Aramaic is a very late cognate language of Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What else do you want to add? I was going to say, so then it comes to me chronologically? Yeah, I think more information um, we should share in the future after we we dig deeper down to this. uh, Okay, so I need to say something briefly so we've got time to get to the Quran as well. So we decided we'd talk about these sequentially, chronologically. So when the limits of the Jewish Bible were set, of course, the Christian tradition remembers that Jesus' birth is right at the beginning of the Common Era, somewhere between zero and three in the Common Era. And so the Jewish scriptures begin in a very similar way, told by word of mouth. Much of it was told and retold before it was ever written down. There are pieces of it that have been edited together in a very in a exact a similar way to the way in which we can still see the lines of editing in the Jewish Bible. So there are references in Scripture to pieces or letters that have been lost. So we know that it was a living document. It wasn't it wasn't um, given directly to any one person. And we can all, everybody's got their own arguments about what was written when. There's some general consensus that, that three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are called synoptic Gospels, are among the earliest. They share a lot of material. Each one of them has some material that is individual to that particular gospel. And so the folks who do far more study than I would say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke shared a lot of the oral traditions, shared a lot of things as they began to be written down, each one of them seeing the events of Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection in a slightly different way. Probably all of them completed by around 80, 90 of the Common Era, with Mark being probably the primary and the first and the shortest. There's also, Bible scholars would say, there's a was some other source that, that got incorporated but was not kept separately that gets called Q or Quell for source in German. So anyway, it's a complex piece similarly collected according to the consensus in the, of the community who had known Jesus and who said this is an accurate representation. So John is, is the latest of the four Gospels. And then in addition to those Gospels, you've got letters, most of them, many of them written by the Apostle Paul, who was Pharisee Saul, changed his name and heard God call his name on the road to Damascus. And so he becomes the Apostle Paul, and some of his writings are some of the earliest as well. So some Bible scholars would argue that a little letter like 1 Thessalonians was probably in writing by about 50 years in the common, 50 common era. So that's really the earliest recording. It is one, yes. Yeah, some of Paul's letters, I think, probably got put together in its final form because one person wrote them, so the others are edited and put together in pieces in the tradition of Matthew, in the tradition of Mark, in the let, tradition of Luke. Let me ask a question that I, I should know the answer to. I hope I know the answer to. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. So there are letters that, that are probably were written by Paul to the churches that he began. There are other letters that were written 
in the tradition of Paul or, or written by other people, some of them written generally to churches. And then you've got things like the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic, a study of the end of times, which is received as a, a vision from John of the end of times. It's highly metaphorical. It's, it's very difficult to understand. Many people have tried to read it as a sort of an exercise in tea leaves, sort of what is that? I actually have the distinction of having an, an uncle who wrote three books based on Revelation identifying the end of times, but he had to write three because he was wrong all three times. So he died before he could get it right before the end came. So he was using Revelation as a sort of a roadmap. It wasn't intended to be that. It was intended to be a call to encourage the Christian church to hang on in the midst of persecution, a sort of a code language to say, hold to the faith that you know that is true. God is good. God is faithful. Um, in the midst of Roman persecution. So all of these things were used by the early Christian tradition. The limits of the Christian New Testament, the first official list that matches what the Protestant church uses now came in 367 in the Common Era. It was an Easter letter that the Bishop of of Alexandria, Egypt, Athanasius, wrote in which he said, "These these are the books we commonly call Scripture. There were still arguments that had to be made Primarily, the book of Revelation, a little letter called James. There were others, but Athanasius' festal letter, Easter letter in 367, lists them all. There were also books that were used and that the Roman Catholic Church, the Western Church, continued and incorporated into their canon. And actually, as a Presbyterian, we have the 27 books of our Old Testament that correspond exactly with the Jewish Bible, because in the Protestant Reformation, there were more books that had been incorporated into the Roman New Testament canon. There were um, 20, uh, let's see, no, into into the Old Testament. So in the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation, there were 46 Old Testament books. And in the Reformation, the reformer said, no, we're going to go back to the limits of the canon that the Jewish rabbis set. So they set aside these other books as apocryphal, okay for reading, okay for study, but not scripture. So the limits of the Protestant Old Testament match exactly the Jewish Bible. And then we have the 27 New Testament books, which are a combination of gospel, uh, apocalyptic letters, those sorts of things. Maybe I better stop there. Well, uh, we're talking now about the Qur'an, <laughs> and uh, I was reading in the Qur'an, it says to Muhammad that we have revealed to you uh, this book confirming what came before it, of the Torah revealed to Musa, Moses, and the Angel revealed to Jesus upon the peace. So it, it is stated that Omar, before he became a convert, that he heard his sister. Omar? Yeah. Omar you? was one. <laughs> Not you. Not me. I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> it, it was one of the uh, companions. Of, he became one of the companions of the prophet. Okay. Uh, but before he became a Muslim, he heard his sister reading. He, he, went, he was on his way to kill the prophet because he, he didn't. Uh, care for what he had heard that Muhammad was trying to change. Was he Jewish or Christian? He was Arab. Arab. Yeah. So 
it is said that on his way there, he, someone told him, said, won't you go by and see your sister? And when he came by, went by to see his sister, he got to the door and he heard somebody reciting something, verses from the Quran. And he went in and he inquired to what was happening with her. But I leave that story, I just said that to say that it was written, okay, on different uh, pieces of material as it was revealed. And so the Quran had two strategies the Prophet had to record, to, to memorize it, and to write it down. Now, let me say this about Muhammad, present peace be upon him, we say. He was at the age of 40. He had lived in Mecca. He was born there, and he was at the age of 40 before he received revelation. He was known to be El-Amin, trustworthy, a sadiq, truthful, but he was never known to have recited anything of he was never known to have studied with anyone. In fact, he was called unlettered, unlettered. And at the age of 40, when he was concerned about his people, they were worshiping over 360 idols. Abraham and his son Ishmael, according to traditions, had built the Kaaba for the worship of the one true God. But by the time Muhammad was born, about 570 CE, then they had over 360 idols there at the Kaaba. And Muhammad was concerned about the people. He was concerned about his people. So he would retrieve, uh, go to the cave, and uh, where he go up high and look down at his people, and he was inquiring as to what could he do to help bring his people out of the ignorance. And it is said that he didn't go looking for God. He was just a person concerned about his people. But being in the cave, fasting and meditating, it said at the age of 40, the angel Jibril uh, came to him and uh, told him to read and gave five verses from the Quran. I won't go through them right now, but the first one was the command to read or proclaim. Uh, Muhammad being uh, somewhat disturbed, he thought he was possessed by a demon or something. So he went home to his wife, shaking and nervous, and she told him, said, no, you're a good man. God uh, wouldn't do you like that. He would choose you for a special purpose. Anyway, she went on and she found a, a Christian monk, a well, cousin of hers, who verified that what he had seen of Muhammad and heard of Muhammad, that he, had, that he was a prophet. And that if he had lived long enough, he would support him. But shortly after that, he passed away. So Muhammad, again, going back to Muhammad receiving the Quran, and uh, it is according to tradition that he memorized what he had received, but he would also tell his scribes or tell those very close to him who were literate to write. They had to write it, and they had to read it back to him. And it is known that the Quran was also uh, recited in daily prayers. That Now, they had some things that they were doing in private. They were not doing this in the public because they were being persecuted in the public. But they had to memorize those, those verses from the Quran and when they would recite anything in the prayers or something of that nature, they would recite those verses from the Quran. Now, over the course of uh, 23 years, Muhammad received verses from the Quran, uh, short chapters from the Quran. They had to write it down. They had to, his close companions, and they had to read it back to him, what they had written down, and they kept checking it to make sure that it was 
the same. So there were many close companions who had memorized the portions of the Quran that he had received up until a certain time. And it is said also very quickly that it is said on the last six months before he passed, the angel Jibril, every, every month, uh, every month in the month of Ramadan, the angel Jibril would come and recite as much of the Quran that had been revealed to Muhammad were recited with him. So they would go over and and, and so about six months before he passed, it is said that the angel Jibril came to him, Gabriel, and recited the whole of the Quran twice. Those companions who were very close to them, there were many of them, they had memorized the Quran, Quran along with him and they had also written it down on different things that they could write it on, anything that could, that could be written on. So when he passed, there were those who had memorized the Qur'an, and there were those who had written it down on different materials, whatever they could write it on. During one of the, the, the person who succeeded him in terms of leadership of the community, not prophet, because revelation stopped when Muhammad passed. There was nothing after that added to the Qur'an according to tra- uh, tradition. Very quickly, the first Khalifa named Abu Bakr. What does Khalifa mean? The ruler okay. uh, of the Muslim community at that time. He, that was a battle. Some, so many of the ones who had memorized the Quran were killed in the battle. So the second person uh, who would become the Khalifa, Omar then, who had accepted Islam, he went to Abu Bakr and told him that we need to preserve the Qur'an, bring it together and preserve it. And because these, so many of them are getting killed, so let's put it together in book form, okay? So one of the very close companions of the Prophet named Zaid ibn Thabit, he was given the mission to bring the Qur'an together in book form, bring all the different pieces that it was written on in book form. And to so Zaid, had others who had memorized the Qur'an with him. And so what they did, they compiled it based upon each one of them looking at what was there, reciting the Qur'an by memory. They compiled the Qur'an. So we have the Qur'an after Muhammad the prophet by those people who were very close to him, trustworthy people. So the prophet died when? He he died... uh, uh, I don't have the exact date, but he was he was sixty three when he passed. So okay. five seventy, he okay. be, he began his mission. Okay. So and uh, he received the first revelation in six ten. Okay. So uh, no, he he was born in six in five seventy. Okay. He received the revelation in six ten. So for forty years would be what. 650. 650, right. Something like that. 40, 43, yeah. So what's the difference of time, I guess, between no, his uh, death? No, I'm sorry. He received it at the age of uh, 40, 40, right? right. So 23 years after that, he passed. Right. So that would be, what, 30, somewhere around 33? 633. 633. Thank you very much. Okay, so then what's the difference in time between his death, the prophet's death, and the putting the Quran in book form? In book form. It was about a year after that. Oh, so real tight. Real tight. About one year after that, it was in book form. Hmm. And it was preserved there uh, under the first Khalifa, and it was passed to the second one, the Khalifa, maybe about Omar, a few years later, because Abu Bakr passed. 
Then when Omar passed, he gave it to his daughter, okay? And she preserved it. That's one, that's one book form, okay? Mm-hmm. Then the third, uh, the third Khalifa, his name is Uthman. He felt a need then to have more of the Quran brought back in. No, have the Quran brought back, rescind it. He called everybody in. They had to uh, make sure that one Quran was established because Islam had spread. And there were those who were beginning to have a different dialect, okay, mm-hmm. from the Prophet had. So to preserve the dialect, the Arabic dialect that the Prophet had, Uthman made sure that that Quran was compiled and put together under the dialect of Muhammad the Prophet. So those who were there close to him made sure that that was established, okay? And as Islam spread, then, you know, it caused problems because there were different people with different dialects. So that mm-hmm. made sure that that was the main one, the dialect of the Prophet. And, and that's why it's important to read it in Arabic and why the reluctance to translate. Well, no, it, it's, uh, it, it's important to know that there were different dialects and you could get a different word, mm-hmm. a different meaning mm-hmm. based upon the dialect. But if you hold it in the dialect that it was revealed to Muhammad and the Prophet, that preserved the purity of it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And four copies, were, well, they say five, were made and sent out to the various areas where Islam has spread. Okay? That one main copy is what other copies were made from. Mm-hmm. So all Muslims now, we have the same original revelation that was given to Muhammad, the prophet, the prayers, and peace be upon him. Just some diacritics have been added, okay? So that's a quick... Uh, Say that piece. again, what has been added? Diacritics. Uh-huh. Yeah, just... Uh, What's diacritics? So, something like vowel signs, vowel signs, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Because that can change the meaning of the word. Yes, if you don't have it right. where it's pronounced the same way. Right. Okay? So, so, for example, Hebrew is all consonants, the vowels or the pointings. So is it the same in Arabic? Well, you have a, a, a triletter uh, base there for Arabic, a common root in the Arabic language. I think you, you mentioned... We have the same. You have the same. Uh, for instance, I heard you use the word writings. In Arabic, ketabah is, is, means he wrote. Mm-hmm. Kitab means book. Almost the same word in Hebrew. Yeah, same word. So, so that root is very important. Right. I'm getting to that to say that uh, we have two sources now. We have the Quran, and then we have the life example of Muhammad the Prophet. Prayers and peace be upon him. The first source is the Quran for Muslims. The second source is called Sunnah. It's called the, well, it, it's, it's the behavior, uh, the customs, you know. And when we say the Prophet, when we say Sunnah of Muhammad, we're talking about his behavior, his uh, sayings, his actions. We have that to demonstrate how the Quran should be lived for us. So we have. So, so is that more like traditions? Yes. Well, it, it, it incorporate, incorporate what he did, how he did it, things that he approved of, things that he disapproved of as a base. Okay? And, and what do you call that again? That's a sunnah. What, is there a al-hadith? Yeah, there are, uh, hadith is the singular, ahadith is plural. Uh-huh. So when you have the, that's the sayings, what he said, they report him what he said. Someone, like the companions will say, I heard the prophet say, okay, 
then someone else will say, I heard this companion say that the prophet said. Those are called hadith sayings of the prophet. They were not written down as much during the time of the prophet, but there were generations, the first generation, second generation, that passed those on. They are the second source because they are not as sound as the Quran is. But we use those two in terms of how we are to live the religion. But the hadith is still sacred. They're still, they're still valued as a second source, but the Qur'an itself. The primary source. Primary source. Right. Because the Qur'an, you can't solve an issue with the hadith going to another hadith. It has to come back to the Qur'an. Now, if that hadith or that saying does not agree with the Qur'an, the essence of the Qur'an, then we are to put it aside. Yeah. But we have to keep the Qur'an because the Qur'an is the Word of God. And I would assume that's very similar to the way our scriptures, the, the canon, that Sumerian root of the word, is meaning a yardstick or it's like a plumb line, yes. something by which you judge what else is straight. This yes. is what's straight. Yes. You hold the Bible up next to it and you can tell whether or not that's straight. Yes. So, yeah, mm-hmm. same. So we had the same thing. So in just in my conclusion, you have, I think you have uh, exegesis. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We have what is called tafsir, and that is the same, in essence, the same, how you explain or how you uh, give uh, some meanings. Without the tafsir, we can't, how can we practice the religion? Mm. So it helps us to understand how to practice the religion by looking at the Quran and looking at also the life of the Prophet Muhammad, praise and peace be upon him. That makes sense. I've got to have a question about the first part of what you said. When Muhammad received his first revelation, you said he received five verses. Five verses. Are those five verses extra sacred? No, but they give some direction because the whole Quran is, is seen as the Word of God, but it gives some direction. Read in the name of your Lord who created, created the human being from a clot of congealed blood. Read in your Lord is most bountiful. He who taught man the use of the pen taught him what he knew not. So you have reading and you have pen writing, connection with education. Are those the five verses? Those are five verses. Ikra bismi rabbika ladhi khalaqa l'insana min ala. Ikra wa rabbuka al-akram alladhi allama bil qalam allama l'insana ma'alam ya'alam. Those were the five that I just said in English. So at the very beginning, you said that the revelation said this builds on the books that Moses has received and the the word of the prophet Jesus. So do Muslims recognize in any form the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible? In essence, uh, we we have the same prophets. We recognize the same prophets, the same revelation. So we're connected. So, for example, we've talked about we need to do a, a, have a conversation about creation stories. So, you know, the, the Christians sh- just assimilate, share all of the, the creation stories that come out of Genesis. And in looking at the Quran that you gave me, it, it sounds very much like a, that story is assumed, but yes. it isn't recreated in the Quran. No, not, not, not quite the same. It's a little tweaking here and there in the Qur'an. For instance, when uh, Adam and his wife is supposed to have uh, disobeyed God, mm-hmm. the Qur'an says the Satan deceived both of them, both Adam and his wife. I think the Bible points to the fact that he went to the serpent, went to the woman first. Mm-hmm. 
then she mm. went to the man, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I heard this when I was in my my church, uh, you know, growing up before yeah. I became Muslim. Someone told the woman, said, uh, someone was in church. They said, okay, you need to be quiet. Man's word was all right until you brought it down. So <laughs> I was going to say, I think that is how that verse has been interpreted a lot, is yeah. to keep... Uh, to, to say that really the, the problem was the woman. Yeah, the, the problem with that reading of Scripture is that the consequences fall on both of them. Yeah, Quran says he, he caused both of them to slip. Mm-hmm. 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 So I gave a little fresh run there, but it's, it's a little bit more complicated. As, <laughs> as Rabbi K said, it's a little bit more involved. It is. Say, yeah. yeah, this is a pretty broad brush. It sure is. There's so much information here, and there's so much, so many pregnant moments and questions that just like emerge out of this. That I, j- yeah, I, I was listening to you because I was I noticed in our study of the Quran, we have to go back to the tri-letter, tri-letter words, the tri-letters. For instance, I said kataba. If I say the same word, mektaba, that's a library where books are, right? And uh, you mentioned the writings. I, I'd like to get with you sometime because we have we have some very close connections there in terms of understanding words and definitions and connections. Yeah, linguistically, we're very closely related. Yes. Wow, I think that might be about all we can. Uh, we're not done, but I think <laughs> we're going to have to stop for today unless there's something y'all want to say or add. I just want to say that they say that the miracle for Muhammad is the Quran because he was not a person that could read or write. Mm-hmm. But we have a, a book that's, uh, that's there for the world to look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as distinct from that, the Bible, is, and from the Jewish point of view, is not relegated to any human being, mm-hmm. but rather just to God. Mm-hmm. And and we would say then that scripture is a a product of God's engagement in working through talking to molding human beings. So it becomes a collaborative creation. Parts of it do sound to me like it was dictated. And then there's I've said before parts of scripture I read and think, what in the world does that mean? Or how do I how do I um, make that agree with what it says elsewhere. So it is a, Christians would say, Scripture is still the living word. It is alive. It talks to itself. Uh, when you study Scripture, it, it talks to itself. And if you listen carefully, then it also clearly talks to us, and it'll say different things depending on the context. So it is a living document. We, we, we call Scripture the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We wouldn't differ terribly from that to say that the document that we call the Bible is not a closed document, but rather begs interpretation and reinterpretation in every generation. I think I heard you say one time, Rabbi Casey, uh, Jonathan, you said uh, Revelation may have uh, ended, but understanding keeps evolving. Right. Yes. That's a good way to put mm-hmm. it. All right, for today. Thank you for joining us again at Abraham's Table. This podcast is a labor of love, produced 
by the three of us with indispensable editing and technical guidance from Andy Hayworth and with musical gifts shared with us by Kyle Lovett from his piece Shofar Worship on Spotify. We've been together for quite a few weeks now. We'd like to hear from you, of course, if you have questions or suggestions or comments, but also we'd like to hear from you if this podcast has been helpful or if there's a topic you'd like for us to address. You're invited to communicate with us via email at abrahamstablesc at gmail.com. From Columbia, South Carolina, we wish you God's peace. Shalom Aleichem, God's peace upon you. Assalamu alaikum, God's peace be upon you.